Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. And in this episode, I sit down with my friend, Dr. Stu Phillips, a full professor from McMaster University. Stu is a world-class protein researcher. He specializes in protein, healthy aging, muscle. We have a great conversation, which include the topic of cancer and protein, the way in which studies are done, how possibly those studies are misrepresented. We also discuss what it looks like to age in a healthy way and his favorite supplements. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, subscribe, leave us a comment. And of course, as always, if you have anything that you would love to learn, shoot me a message and I will do my best to accommodate. Now, regardless of your dietary preferences, it is really important to know what is going on under the surface. And when I say under the surface, not only do I mean muscle, but I also mean blood. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank one of our sponsors, which is Insight Tracker. And again, it is also incredibly valuable when you are switching nutrition plans to actually see what is working for your body, not just by feel, but actually by data. You can, of course, Utilize Insight Tracker on your own and even take those results to work with your own personal physician. Insight Tracker analyzes blood, DNA, fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized, where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance. And of course, you can incorporate what you're already doing, looking at nutrition and even supplementation. They have a component called InterAge, InterAge 2.0. They have a component called Inner Age 2.0 to look at and create a plan based off your biological age, which is really interesting. And for a limited time only, you can get 20% off the entire Insight Tracker store. Just go to insighttracker.com forward slash Dr. Lion. That's insighttracker.com forward slash Dr. Lion. Let's get into the episode. Dr. Stu Phillips. Now, you are, I would argue, world-renowned professor and tier one Canadian, we won't hold that against you, research chair, Department of Kinesiology, director of physical activity, center for excellence at Pace, and you're a full professor at McMaster University. I I am all that. Father of three boys. (laughs) And the father of three boys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. Are you kidding? We've how many years have we known each other? So we met uh, through Dr. Donald Lehman. It's yeah. How many years ago? Uh, I don't even want. I like so COVID warp time a little bit, but it's at least ten. At least ten years. Okay. Uh, Wow. Yeah. Botox is working well. Working well. Hopefully, uh, they will use a little more. And I'm not talking about yeah. yeah, Not I'm not talking about yours. (laughs) Now, I am so excited to have you on, and for reasons that I believe are incredibly important, incredibly important to the listener. You are a voice of reason in the space. I am a bit biased because I've been following your work for over a decade now. Actually, you know, as you know, Don Lehman is my longtime mentor. And obviously, you guys are very good friends and have collaborated on many uh, papers and letters to the editor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a great guy. I love, I love, uh, yeah. I run into Don all over the world. We've met in Chicago to New Zealand to you name it. Uh, places in the middle and far east and I'm hey Don how you doing in fact I rarely see him in the United States so it's it's always a pleasure well it is um you know I just want to thank you for all the pivotal work you've done and we're just going to start so my question to you is what is muscles role in health yeah, yeah, a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think the most easy one that everybody can point to is if you don't have enough muscle mass or it's not working quite right, then obviously you can't move around. So mobility would be the key one. 
Uh, but I think, uh, and you know, my former mentor, Bob Wolf, wrote a really cool paper, well, it must be pushing 15 years ago now, the underappreciated role of muscles. So, you know, when you distill resting metabolic rate down to the two tissues that really contribute to it, it's your liver, um, although it's pretty small, it's very metabolically active, and your muscle because of its mass. And, you know, it's not as metabolically active, particularly if it's sedentary, but the more active you are, then it's a big contributor to your resting metabolic rate. So huge determinant of whether you're going to gain or lose fat, you know, as you, as you age and depending on what you do. Uh, and then I think the last one that probably most people have a sense of is that the largest site of, of post-meal disposal of glucose is, is in muscles. So it's the, it's the sink, if you like, for, for post-meal glucose. So when you have a high, what we call high metabolic activity, high quality of muscle, uh, then really you, you've got a great place to put blood glucose. And so your, your blood glucose regulation is a little bit tighter. So basically we were talking about the importance of the, you know, I think that everybody talks about obesity and adipose tissue as their focal point. And that's a very fat phobic conversation. And what you've done a fantastic job of is really focusing on muscle and muscle is this organ of longevity and muscle as the pinnacle and not kind of a peripheral tissue. And, uh, that's that's really what I was asking was the, you know, where do you see muscles role in health? And I know that you answer these questions all the time on a million different podcasts. But, um, you know, I think you have a very unique perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everybody recognizes if you don't have enough muscle or it's not good quality muscle, you can't generate enough force, then mobility is going to be effective. And as soon as human beings become immobile or less mobile, then their quality of life declines quite sharply. So I think that's the one that most people can point to. But obviously, it has a key role in uh, resting metabolic rate. It, it's the one organ outside of liver, which is, although it's small, it's very metabolically active. Your muscles, not as metabolically active. But if you exercise, there's a lot of it. So I think that that's a, that's a key one. Uh, and, you know, after you've consumed uh, a meal, the largest site of postprandial or post-meal storage of blood glucose or blood sugar is muscle. So, you know, if you don't have enough and it's not a particularly, you know, high metabolic activity tissue, so in other words, you've been sedentary, then uh, you're going to have a hard time controlling blood sugar. So, you know, muscle plays a lot of other roles that, uh, that I think people are probably not aware of. But, you know, certainly, you know, as we get older, we get weaker. And, and that's primarily where people focus. Well, well yeah, I'm, I'm fighting the fight. But, uh, you know, eventually aging catches up. The idea is, is, is to, you know, slow the decline, uh, which is I'm, I'm definitely on the downward side of the curve. So no, yeah. not you. You look great for 29. Yeah. Really? Th yeah, really thank you. No. Yeah. Phenomenal. 29 is a distant memory. But <laughs> it, those were good days. <laughs> you know, you mentioned something that is really important. Uh, and you mentioned the older adult and we'll define older right in the literature is really 65 and up. Um, and there was a paper that had come out in Cell, which I think really created a lot of problems, not only for those in the research of dietary protein, but really as myself as a, a practitioner. And the, the title of this paper, I think this was 2014 and Levine was the first author and it is low protein intake is associated with a major reduction in IGF-1 cancer and overall mortality in um, 65 and younger, but not the older population. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you remember this paper? I, I do very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I just want to state some of the, the things that really were quite shocking for uh, myself and I think the media truly took this to a whole nother level uh, based on, on this paper, which I, I certainly appreciate when someone publishes a paper that you know, a lot of work goes into it. And, and basically, it said that those in the highest protein intake group had a marked 74% increase in their relative risk of all-cause mortality. And uh, they went on to say, uh, and were more than four times as likely to die of cancer when compared to those in the low intake group. Yeah. Curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Which I know, but. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a bit of a storm when it came out. And I mean, it, it, you know, the, the journal Cell Metabolism obviously occupies a, a very high 
status in the field. Um, it's a it's a relatively new journal, but in 2014, it, I think it was in probably its second or maybe third year of existence. And so this paper came out. Walter Longo was one of the authors on there as well, and Morgan Levine was the first author. Uh, you know, let me say right off the bat, uh, you know, Dr. Longo and I probably are at odds on on protein requirements. He's definitely a low protein guy. I'm a high er protein guy. Um, his work that contributed in that paper is a lot of you know transgenic animal work, uh, growth hormone receptor knockouts, these sorts of things. It's incredible science. I, you know, lots of respect for his work and, and and everything else like that. The work that I think that people took away from it and that was really the headline of the message in the press was around the. Uh, analysis of the NHANES data that was, and, and that I understand is, was the domain of Morgan Levine. Uh, and she, uh, I, I, you know, in my sense, I, I think if you had taken those data and had them sent to a nutrition journal and reviewed there, they, they wouldn't have passed the bar. So, you know, what I'm saying is that at, at cell metabolism, I don't think the right reviewers got a hold of the NHANES data, which is the relative risks that we're talking about in people uh, to adequately review the paper. And, you know, uh, we have some data uh, that we're, we're trying desperately to get published um, that actually completely refutes uh, that analysis. And we use a full and robust data set. It's not the small number of individuals that were used in that trial. And, you know, I hasten to add that when somebody talks about four times more cancer, um, that's on par with smoking and you know smoking is generally sort of seven times which is you know it's it's it, it's you know, if there's one thing you'd never want to do is take up smoking right but so non-smokers versus smokers seven times the risk of lung cancer and everybody would be like you know duh i get that but when you say cancer risk is four times greater in one group versus another um it, you know it, it's it's more than half the effect of smoking that is a that is a huge effect. And so really the effect in that paper is an artifact of the very small numbers of people they had that actually had cancer and died from cancer. And so, you know, once you get down to small numbers, like a few sort of blips here and there, make big differences. And so relative risks in that sense are, are, are huge. Um, and when it's done on a, with an adequate sample, I, I'd add, and you know, I, I've probably been saying this for far too long because this paper is a, a collaborative effort and it's taken a while to get out. I, I, okay, I'll make a promise. It'll get out in 2022. Uh, and uh, you, you'll see. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've been saying it for years, honestly. Um, you'll see that it's, there's no increase in cancer risk with high ER versus low ER protein intakes and not even any uh, change in, in the hormone that's supposed to drive all of this, which is IGF-1. So, IGF-1. Yeah. You know, um, basically what I'm hearing you say is there's a lot of mechanistic data that was utilized in this paper with uh, in combination which, with, NHANES, with, with the NHANES data set, which is a very large database and can be chosen and certain individuals can be chosen, certain data sets. And, and it seems like it was very, I don't want to say manufactured, but the end result, you know, I, I hesitate to say that. Yeah, it's, it's not, it wasn't manufactured, but it's a, it, it's a small data set it's a fraction of the data that's available for the data set that they actually used. And they, why do you think that that, why do you think that that was done that way? <laughs> I, I have no idea. I mean, uh, you know, again, if you took those data out of that paper and submitted them to any decent nutrition journal worth its salt, it wouldn't have been published. So I just think that the people at cell metabolism who got their hands on that paper looked at exclusively or almost exclusively at the molecular data and and it's it's astonishing it's very very good and you know Walter Longo tells a great story about uh, a, a particular type of uh, individuals who have a form of dwarfism who lack a growth hormone receptor who have no cancer and I mean that's an astonishing finding and it's a genetic obviously mutation that results in people who are short in stature 
but it certainly indicates that these growth factors do play a role in the development of cancer. The NHANES data that accompanied that analysis, it w was, in my opinion, very poorly done. And, and, and you know, our hope is to, is to rebut that with our own analysis of, uh, of NHANES data with a much more robust sample size. Do you feel that this has been misinterpreted by the scientific community? <laughs> <laughs> I was Am definitely I putting misinterpreted. You on the spot? <laughs> yeah, I think it was definitely misinterpreted by the press. The British press is great for this stuff. They have uh, they love tabloid splashy headlines, and you know it was like uh, eat a bacon sandwich, the equivalent of you know smoking a pack of cigarettes or something. <laughs> uh, let, let's just say is that uh, that paper uh, planted the seed for a lot of other protein restriction work that's subsequently gone on that I still think is grossly overinterpreted in the, in, in, in the lens of human health as to what it means. So, um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a law, it's an Italian, I think he was a computer programmer, Bordellini or somebody who said, you know, once something's out there, what it takes to displace it is 10 times greater. There's probably a few uh, words I shouldn't say on, on your show, but let's just say is that the more BS that's out there, the more BS, you know, it, like it, it takes a lot of work to, to shovel up the, the BS that's out there. So uh, it's going to take a lot of work to undo, like it, like it took uh, to undo, you know, protein causes kidney disease, kidney failure. Um, you know, that's not true. Uh, it doesn't make your bones soft either, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but it's been around for so long now, uh, it's beginning to become part of the lexicon of how we should prescribe dietary protein for, uh, for individuals. And even that paper, I hasten to add, showed that higher protein was better for older people. So, you know, chalk one up for the older people need more protein uh, side of the equation. So uh, I'll take that one away. <laughs> what do you think the unintended consequences of a publication like this are to the uh, older population? Yeah, it's hard to say, uh, you know, uh, the, the paper is a scientific publication, and I suppose it depends on the degree of knowledge translation that happens as a result. And, and you know, I'm always cognizant of our work and the effects that it can have, the knock-on, when it's published, people read it, people pay attention, Pract practitioners do change practice, uh, I have I understand. Not everybody follows the literature, Um so sometimes it takes longer. Uh, it maybe it makes it into clinical practice guidelines, or maybe it doesn't. But certainly, it uh, it stirred up uh, enough of a controversy in the area to begin to question a lot of the you know higher protein recommendations. And all of a sudden, it wasn't protein makes your bones soft and causes your kidney to fail. It was and gives you cancer and. You know, uh, there's a Joe Jackson song. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't, but he well, has a line in there. S you should sing it for us. You know, it's everything gives you cancer. And, and, and you know, it's set to a sort of a, a, a kind of jazzy piano beat. And and it's true, right? Uh, if you live in the, in the state of California, I, I had the pleasure of doing a sabbatical there, there in uh, 2006 at Stanford. Um, it, it almost broke me. It was cost me so much to live there. Uh, but everything in California was like, this may cause cancer. You know, this may cause oh, cancer. Yeah, and you know, like right. I took the kids to the, yep. to the swimming pool and it says, there's a, you know, chemicals here that may cause cancer. I was like, holy smokes, you know, like it's, the, the kids are reading it. They're like, dad, it says cancer. I'm like, we're, we're good. You know, let's, let's hop in the swimming pool. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think the tempered message is, is that four times the, the risk that's diabolical. And, you know, even the most reasonable scientist would have to look at that and think, you know, that has to be a, a statistical, you know, flub right there. Um, you know, it's created by a small number. Uh, and if you look at the absolute numbers, it's it's really, you know, about the difference of about five people. Right. And, and you make a really good point, the uh, relative risk versus the absolute risk. And uh, oftentimes relative risk is, is used to make numbers seem much more robust. 
Yeah. Um, well, if you have I, one person die in this group and and four people over here, there's four times more, and and it seems like a big deal, but it's it's the absolute difference is three people. So, you know, that's that's the simple hand math, but you, you people get the point, I think, and uh, we need to talk about absolute risk in some cases, and uh, and their data in that paper uh, was th there's some problems. So, do you believe that higher protein diets cause cancer? No. I would agree with you. In a word. And <laughs> I mean, listen. I, I we... mean, I, I, now I need to back that up, and and, and I'm telling you, the the data will come, the, the the paper will come out there, and you know, finally, I'll say, there you go. Take a read of that, and you know, put that in your NHANES pipe, and and you know, have a smoke of that, because it, you know, really, like I, it's it's done by uh, in collaboration with people who work with NHANES data all the time. And, uh, and the reality is, is that there's no relationship between dietary protein intake and cancer or IGF-1 even. And even the relationship between IGF-1 and cancer is not particularly strong when you look across the human epidemiological observational data. So, you know. Also true. Also true. This, uh, I think that that's very illuminating for a lot of people because, uh, as you know, Having uh, I better Lina. back it up now with that paper, huh? Yeah, that, that paper better be coming in hot, Stu. Coming yeah, in hot. It's, it's it, it, you know, reviewers willing, it, it's out there. I mean, I feel like it's actually been rejected from a, a few journals now, is that enough people have seen it as reviewers that I can call it almost in press. You know, it's, it's been rejected from that that many journals, So, uh, which is probably why, where why the cell metabolism paper... I think people are, are are inherently mistrustful of of NHANES self-report data, um, but it's that was the key that was the linchpin piece of data in this cell metabolism article that allowed people to beat the drum for protein causes cancer. And you know, and and again, step back and take a look at the other you know studies where they've looked at this, and it, it's nowhere near conclusive. So. You know, it's sort of like the smoking gun analogy, like you just, you know, waiting for the data. Um, it, exactly the same thing that happened after 50 years of the Brenner hypothesis, protein causes kidney failure. Uh, you do a meta-analysis. We did one and a bunch of other groups. No relationship. And people, oh, well, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And I'm like, well, it's been 50 years, guys. Like, so where's the, where's the data? Like how, how long after the thesis comes out without data do you say the thesis is wrong? In people with established kidney disease failure, high ER protein, probably not a good idea. But the causation part of it, no data. Are you ready for my non-scientific question? Go for it. Yeah, okay. go for it. Why do you think there's such disparity in terms of the anti, I don't want to say anti-animal narrative, but essentially that's really what I'm seeing. Why do you think that that is happening from just a personal standpoint? I, I, have, I have not, in the last 10 years, I have seen more push to increase plant-based nutrition, not saying that that is bad, right? But you cannot discount that Quality of protein matters. You cannot discount. I'm a geriatrician by training. I was in Sam Klein's lab at WashU. And, uh, you know, part of my great responsibilities guy. are taking care of. Yeah, great. Very charismatic. Yeah. Incredible. He is. He's uh, an awesome guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And part of my responsibility is, was taking care of uh, geriatric patients. And no clinician would ever say go, go low protein. Right. And right. I'm just curious, so back to my personal question is, why do you think that we are seeing this? Yeah, uh, like great question. Um, again, another one with a lot to unpack. And, and you know, again, um, hand on my heart, I have to tell you, like uh, I live in Canada. Our food guide now is very plant focused. Um, there was a heavy, and I mean heavy lobby to in the last round of revisions when our, our food guide was revised to uh, block, eliminate, uh, discount any research that was deemed to be industry either funded or influenced in any of the, the derivation of the food guide. 
And so uh, there's a very heavy plant-based focus to it. Uh, I think if you're a young, healthy person, um, eating plants, not an issue. Uh, I think particularly these days with the increased choices of plant-based foods, you know, many of which people sort of say, oh, look, you know, beyond meat, it's, it's plant-based. And, and I say, yes, it's, it's processed plant-based food, but, but it's plant-based, no question. Um, you know, 10 years ago, that didn't exist, right? So, you know, 20 years ago, uh, on, in the early days of, of Don and I appearing on the Protein Roadshow together, uh, as we did, it was just, it was just soy, all we talked about was soy because that was really it. And so, but now there's, there's soy, there's pea, there's hemp, there's rice, there's, you know, you, you name it. Just about every plant that we once thought, you know, there's no protein in that. People are able to extract protein or process the plant to some degree that makes the protein a little bit more bioavailable. So now the choices are, are many. So, so I think that there's there's probably two pressures that have led to this. First, uh, there has to be an economic pressure, or people wouldn't do this. There's there's no reason to 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 look for plant plant protein unless there's an economic pressure. So, and I think we all realize that the cost of animal protein is going up. I, I mean, the cost of food is going up, but but just about everywhere. And you know, uh, and particularly during the pandemic, when I was the designated grocery and guy and I, I did all the cooking and everything for everybody in the house. How much weight did your family lose on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they I, I actually, I rediscovered during the pandemic, my love of cooking and, and I, and I really, I, I really do enjoy it. Um, I think people are in the house are happy for the most part. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in, in seriousness, like I was looking at the cost of things, I was like, this is, this is crazy. Like it's, it, you know, I, my wife and I, great jobs. We're, we're, we're doing well. But I can't imagine if you're on lower incomes what it must be doing to, to look at some of these things. So let's just say economics is the other one. Uh, and at the same time, a, a very concerted move by, uh, you know, people at Eat Lancet and, you know, you know the cast that I'm talking about. I do. Can you, can you just, to, uh, for the listener, can you let them know who that, that crew is? <laughs> well, I mean, one of is, the key guys. Uh, yeah, so I mean, Eat Lancet is a consortium of uh, scientists and nutritionists and environmentalists who are really sh- saying that the the key to planetary survival is is plant based eating, and and that animal based eating is ravaging the environment. And so methane gas production because of, you know, uh, all kinds of livestock is causing greenhouse gas to go up, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, so I I don't know anything about the accounting of greenhouse gases. So I'll just say that right off the bat. But I have had the pleasure of sitting in on a few discussions to look at those arguments. And, you know, through a simple slip of a decimal point, you can change it from mega to gigatons of greenhouse gas and you know i don't even know what a gigaton is but i know it's more than a megaton you know 10 to the third more and so it's almost like economic math right it's like let's assume we we do this and, and everything and i don't think anybody would dispute that there are some environmental consequences we need to be cognizant of I don't know that I buy the argument that it's a, a switch to plant-based eating that is the solution. It may be part of the solution, and we, I think we can all agree it's okay. We could eat a few more plants. But when it comes to is it going to solve the problem, I think there's more and bigger things that we need to tackle. Uh, industry emissions, car emissions, and everything, by far a much greater concern from an environmental standpoint, hands down. Uh, you know, bringing it all back to, yeah, well, bringing it back to what we we're talking about, though, for an older person, and this, I, I, I share your concern here. Uh, I think that it's possible as an older person with very judicious choices in food to be plant-based. But I stress the very judicious part, and it's not easy. You know, and a lot of plant-based, I know I'm going to upset plant-based because they're going to go, oh, my grandmother, she she finds it easy. And I'm like, because she spent, you know, X number of years doing it. But if you're going to make the switch, it's tough. Now, there's probably a generation of people that are going to grow up 
Uh, I think it's fair to say my sons will eat less meat than I will. And their sons will eat less meat than their, you know. So uh, will it go down to zero and will it save the planet as a result? I, I'm less convinced. But you're right, protein quality as you get older becomes increasingly important. And you're going to have to stay tuned. It's going to probably take us about a year and a half to two years. We're, we're, we're doing some work where we think we're going to get a good answer to that question of whether it's important or not. I think that that can be very powerful. This is a great place to stop and thank one of the sponsors of the podcast. The sponsors make this possible and they are all vetted and chosen by me. Today's sponsor is First Form. You know, guys, if you've been following me for any length of time, I've been working with First Form since 2018. I believe in them. I believe in the people. I believe in the product. Not only do I believe in the product, but they actually offer a 110% money back guarantee. They make amazing, amazing products. They stand behind them too. Stu talks about his personal supplement regimen and what's on his shelf. Talks about creatine and fish oil, both of which I utilize from First Form. In addition, it is difficult for many people to get all of their protein requirements. And a great way to do that is by utilizing protein powder. And there is a pure whey protein isolate called Formula One Natural. That is the one that I recommend that I utilize. It's Formula One Natural by First Form. It is sweetened with stevia. It will help you meet your protein needs, get all the essential amino acids. You can mix it with water or <laughs> coffee, depending on how busy you are and how many little children that you may or may not have. Um, again, they have a money-back guarantee. They are a great product. I'd love to hear what you think. Check them out at firstform.com. That's one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com backslash Dr. Lion. And now back to... Do you have any concerns about, you know, now when we are talking about going more plant-based, in order to meet these protein needs, essentially we're talking about going to much more processed foods. And now we are not looking at the food matrix anymore. We are not looking at, for example, beef has bioavailable iron and B vitamins and zinc and selenium. We're now looking at processed pea type. And we don't even know what's in it because I don't think we even know what that's going to look like 10 years from now in terms of, you know, it, it's not just pea. There's all kinds of, you know, with soy, we know there's isoflavonoids. With pea, we don't even really know what's in that. I'm just curious if you have any concern about that kind of food, those kinds of food choices. I think we've learned a lesson about processed foods. I mean, I think Kevin Hall has, has really taught us a very good lesson in terms of energy balance and about, you know, carbs are bad, you know, fat is bad, you know, blah, 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 and weight, weight and energy balance. He did a great study, really elegant finding where he, you know, basically gave people, uh, you know, calorically matched diets, but one that was high in processed foods. And, you know, processed foods are generated by food companies. And, you know, we, we see that uh, the essentially, you know, 800 new foods appear. And it's not 800 new, you know, milk or yogurt or eggs or beef or, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the middle aisles where, where the food blows up, right? So I, I think the, the key point is that anything when you process it and you add salt to it, you add some flavor to it that makes it in the food manufacturer lexicon, it's moorish in your mouth. So you go, mm, that's good. Um, then you tend to eat more. Uh, is, is that a bad thing? It, it is if you're not getting the nutrients that go along with the food itself. So, you know, from my perspective, uh, as you point out, uh, I think quite correctly, and we've, we've done this analysis, is that animal-based foods are nutrient-dense. The more of them that you eat, the, the, the better the quality of your diet. That, that, you know, 
You eat dairy, you get calcium. If in, in North America, it's vitamin D fortified. You eat eggs, you get uh, lutein, biotin that you, you, know, you don't get uh, in other foods. Beef, there's zinc, there's iron, et cetera. It's creatine? very nutrient dense. What about Dif creatine? Yeah, difficult, difficult to find those nutrients in other foods for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and I do have some concerns about in the next 10 years, what we are looking at in terms of uh, osteoporosis. I think that we are going to see, I know that there is some bioavailable calcium, but it's very low. Spinach, you're looking at maybe 5% compared to, to dairy. And I do have concerns about if we are going to see an epidemic of osteoporosis. Um, how do you see you know in terms of an older individual uh you've done a, a ton of work right you a lot of your research is based in older individuals and i'm always curious in terms of anabolic resistance individuals that are actually well trained older individuals it seems as if the data doesn't necessarily take what we would think of as really well-trained older athletes and seeing what does their muscle look like and, and how do they fit in into the research. It's almost like we have a sedentary, you're laughing, we have a sedentary Yeah, No, 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 I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll okay. tell you my story in a little bit. Go ahead, yeah. Hey, no, you're right. Uh, I, um, people ask, one of the key questions when I talk about, I show curves and, and they're, they're population curves from you know, lots of different data sources and, you know, muscle mass goes up, it plateaus and then it comes down and people say, so w when does that start? And, and I say, oh, like the downward stuff. And they say, yeah, like I can see on here. And I'm like, well, it's, it's about 57 and they go 57. And I'm like, yeah, next year it's 58. And they go, that's pretty specific. And I said, well, it's just a, a personal observation, you know, but so, it's, yes. So let's just say, it, it, you know, if you look at the population curves and, you know, interestingly enough, I was looking at a few of these, like only this morning. Uh, so you knew I was going to ask Some other this. work I was doing. I don't, I don't, telepathic, yeah. Um, they tend to bend, you know, around your 40s, right? It, you begin to sort of see that inflection and that, that curve comes down. Uh, in our hands, we think you can find people in their 30s where you, already muscle mass is going down. Like, you, you know, you go up and into your, your teens and your 20s and you're, you're almost anabolic into your mid-20s. Don would sort of, he goes, I think even later. And I'm like, okay, if you're active, I would probably agree. Um, and, you know, if you lift and do everything, you can still put the muscle on. Uh, if you, you know, not atypically... You take a sedentary job, you begin to eat the business lunches, you don't hang out with your friends and, you know, shoot baskets on Fridays or play hockey on Mondays or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you're living, you know, that you spend the de facto state in your day is sitting down in front of a computer screen. And all of a sudden you step on the scale, you're like, whoa, like what just happened? Like, you know, so I think in those scenarios, you can find those individuals who are losing muscle mass and gaining fat mass. On the, on the other hand, we, we've, we've come across individuals when we recruited for some of these trials, like these older individuals, we put a pedometer on them and they're doing 22,000 steps a day. And, That's incredible. Like, and, and That's a lot incredible. of them say, oh, I've got, you know, I've got five dogs. I do this. I do that. I go to the gym. I swim. I, I do everything. And, and in those people, I, I think that they, you know, they're hanging on to muscle like, you know, for dear life. So are they on the downward slope? Probably. Uh, but it's definitely not that, you know, they're not bending down like this. They're basically sort of coming down in a very, very slow fashion. And the idea, of course, is to preserve that as long as you can, because at some point, if, if there is a threshold, let's say there is, you know, we always sort of say below this threshold, what it, I don't know it's the threshold per se, but at a certain point, you become weaker, it's harder to do things, and your risk for disability diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, and everything goes up. So, uh, and I think it's all sort of tied into, uh, as you said, muscle is, you know, in my world, muscle's always in the middle, but uh, I think it's particularly important. That is, it's really interesting. Um, 
because you're talking about it in terms of population, you know, I think how, you know, in my mind, I, I wonder, do we, are we looking at kind of sick models, right? The, because we don't act, do we know what it would look like when individuals were moving the way in which would be, I don't want to say ideal, but really for optimal health, right? Because we are so sedentary as humans. I mean, the anabolic resistance, all the aging studies are really, we say that they're sedentary, but sedentary is almost a sick model. You know, I'm yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious as to it is it, it's a, it is it's a sick it's a sick model. And I mean, look, look, we've done some work where we took older people who were, you know, ostensibly healthy. They're not on beta blockers. They're not taking statins. They're they're in good health. Right. And for two weeks, we say, here's a pedometer. You can take no more than a thousand steps per day. And everybody goes, that's diabolical. And I'm like, well, that's a hospital patient. That's what a, a hospital patient takes about 700 steps per day and they lay in bed or they sit in a chair. And these are healthy people. So these are not even sick people in a hospital. And in two weeks, they get weaker, they lose muscle mass, they become mildly diabetic. And the worst part is, and this, this actually surprised us, we took the pedometer off and said, okay, go back, go and do the stuff you've, you've done before. And two weeks later, they, they weren't better. <laughs> So, you know, this downward trajectory and, and uh, you know, Doug Padden-Jones, good friend of both Don and I, sadly passed away really early in his life last year, uh, was the, he coined the term catabolic crisis. So you're doing this, you have a hospitalization, you lose muscle mass like crazy. And if you're a young person, you do that and you come back. If you're an older person, you come down and now you just continue on a trajectory. So you've hopped from one curve to a whole new family of curves, much, much below. And those disuse events are massive watershed moments. Now, if you're a robust, healthy, older, active person and have one of those, still not good, but you'll weather it a whole lot better than somebody who's not. And, and, and that those moments, I think, like the pandemic highlighted just how important they were, uh, are are really the differentiator between true successful aging. Like if everybody just followed the curve and went down, I think we'd be okay. If you're doing this and you have one of those disuse events, it's it's hard to to bounce back back from for sure. In terms of disuse, do you think? Uh, protein restriction would have close to the same impact or, uh, you know, in terms of weighing out um, for muscle health. So disuse protein restriction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've tried a number of strategies to out nutrition, disuse. It's very difficult. So the only thing you can do is really get protein up. Uh, You can give people lots of omega-3 fatty acids and that helps. Uh, but the truth is, is um, if you're on a low protein diet coming in and, you know, so you're, you're hovering around and you're doing this and then you have a disuse event, you, you're going to tip over into that. So, you know, I recently had an interesting conversation uh, with an individual who uh, followed a very low protein diet. Uh, he came off his bike and uh, he was, you know, I mean, he was okay. But he took a while to sort of recover and rehabilitate. And he said on the backside of, uh, of that, the, the recovery trajectory, he said, I, th- I think I, I did myself a disservice by being on that, li- that low protein diet. And, you know, he had listened to the you know, protein restriction extends longevity and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is not actually in and humans, right? So that's only... Oh, no, just, no data in humans. Right. And, and even, even there's no data in primates for, for that matter. Um, so, and even the data on caloric restriction in primates is conflicting. So, you know, uh, kind of glaze over that. Uh, but I, you know, not I think for long, I'm coming, I'm coming for you next I, one. We're going to talk about it. I know, I know. It's, yeah. So I think the main point is, it, it, you know, is, is to say that there's probably like there's simplicity in remain active, eat nutrient dense foods, higher protein, I think is, is a, is a good part of it. 
keep your brain sharp, definitely. And, you know, uh, particularly if your risk for dementia, Alzheimer's, what, uh, you know, is, is higher. Um, and have a good circle of friends and, and, or whatever you want to call it. purpose, something in your life. If it's your church, I don't care what it is. If it's volunteering, if it's, you know, something and you age well. And then people go, oh, but we could restrict protein. We could give you, and there's lots of like sort of things that they throw in there. And I'm like, yeah, they, they might work, but I've, I've got a lot of water squeezed out of the cloth with be active, eat right. Uh, you know, yeah. And I would even, I would even so, go on the record of saying that for an older individual and aging, low protein is bad advice. I would, I, yeah, I, I think so I believe too. it's bad advice. You mentioned omega-3 fatty acids. I'm really glad you did because there's a lot of stuff in, in the literature and I'm just not sure the mechanism of action it, it, as it relates to muscle health. I, I would love to hear from your perspective. Uh, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest. Uh, I had a postdoc. He's left now. He's actually got a faculty position of his own named Chris McGlory. Uh, he, he, brought that concept into the lab. Uh, he was with us for almost five years. It was a great five years. And he really uh, changed my learning on, on omega-3 fatty acids. I was impressed by what they did. Uh, they improved mitochondrial function. They helped the muscle resist against, so you lose less muscle if you've got more omega-3s on board. We Do showed we know that why? in- Do we know? It's, it, we think it's related to mitochondrial function. So if you can prop up mitochondria, which obviously tank when you go into a disuse situation, we think that that's part of it. Now, it's either signaling through that or it's preservation of their ability to produce energy. Uh, so I, 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 stay tuned. Uh, Chris, Chris will answer that question before before I will. He left and I'm like, you got to do that omega-3 stuff because I'm not going to do it. Uh, but really, um, it's rare in science to be surprised. I like to say that, uh, but I've been pleasantly and, and sometimes not so pleasantly surprised uh, with the effects that we saw. And omega-3, particularly in a disuse scenario, when I saw it, I was like, wow, okay, that that's, that's interesting because uh, I didn't expect for it to be as protective as it was. Mm. That appears was for reasons was we don't... Sorry, was there a yeah, dosage? Yeah, the dose is pretty high. The <laughs> dose is pretty high. It's it's about um, about a gram and a half of EPA and DHA a day. So it's 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 high dose, and and I ha hasten to add high quality stuff too. So it was tested for oxidized status and everything else like that. So I don't know that you can you'd have to take a lot of pills if you were doing this, but for reasons we don't fully understand, chalk this one up. It works better in women. And, and I don't know why. It, it, like it works. We showed it in young women and there's a, a, an abundance, a growing abundance of data in older women um, showing enhanced effects with resistance training. And it doesn't tend to work as well in, in older men. So, you know, and, and I have no clue there. I, I, absolutely no clue. So, um, you know, in, incredible... Uh, it's been around for all this time. We, it was cardiovascular and heart health and everything. And now we're saying, actually, it's pretty important in muscle function as well. That's really interesting. Any other supplements that you utilize that you've seen be protective in muscle, regardless of their age? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, did you read I have about a short that? Supplement shelf. <laughs> did you read about that this morning? I have a short supplement shelf. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. Uh, I have a short supplement shelf. It's got omega threes on it. Uh, it's got creatine on it, and it's got vitamin D. And really, after that, I think you know you can sort of play around with a few others. But um, uh, from my standpoint, uh, the, those are the ones that if I, somebody were to say to me as I get older, what should I take? And they go, creatine, isn't that, and is that going to mess your kidneys? And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's been around for 40 years. There's been no epidemic of kidney failure in people who use creatine. I think the really impressive part for me now coming out is, uh, is showing the impact that it has on cognitive function and on brain function. So another sort of spillover effect from it's not just muscle, it's 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 how it preserves my brain function as well. So uh I'm privileged to run a center, uh, community access center, PACE, you mentioned. Average age of the people that come in there is about 73. There's about 500 of them. They're awesome people. 
And what they tell me, the two things that they're concerned about, one is losing their mobility and the other one is, is not being able to be cognitively intact. So we tell them frequently that the exercise that they're doing is not only great for their muscles, their cognitive abilities are better preserved as well. And we have sessions on, you know, how to keep your brain active, what it is, what it takes to keep your brain healthy from a nutritional standpoint, which is a growing body of literature. So it's, uh, it's cool to see uh, the effect that, that the creatine has, yeah, for sure. It, it's really interesting. You know, when you had mentioned, you know, I think it's amazing that you're doing this work with older adults, uh, obviously, because I'm a geriatrician uh, by training, and it's very important. I wish that we could have gotten to these groups earlier. Really, uh, you had mentioned that in their 30s, we're seeing muscular changes, whether it's skeletal muscle insulin resistance, whether it's changes in the tissue, right? Infiltration of fat and, and, and just a lot of disuse. In your research, are you looking at or are there ways in which you're measuring muscle health? Are you guys doing biopsies? Are you using ultrasound? Um, how, yeah. What are you guys doing? Um, I agree 100%. Uh, I think you're, I mean, it is, it's sort of the, you know, the analogy is, is the, the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So, you know, don't wait until you're 60 or 70 and a health crisis happens and you think, oh, I need to pick myself up from that. Um, when does aging start? Well, you know, from day one, right? But, you know, for our teen years and into our 20s, we're on our way up and everybody's bulletproof, as my three sons constantly remind me. I mean, listen, they're not <laughs> and, wrong. Uh, no, no, no. They're they're in great. Like watching them eat is actually uh, like I have to stand back. Like I can't even I can't put my fingers on the table. It's like it's a uh, yeah. I will so, tell you that my husband walked uh, in and he went for a corn dog. So I made corn dogs for the kids and, and there was this beautiful roast chicken comes in he's like pounding the corn dogs anyway yeah these these boys uh, they they would go for the corn dogs too but then then they would eat the chicken as well so you know like if i don't get in there i don't get any food so you know it is incredible to watch these these kids metabolize food no question uh, you know one of the things like i said when and then you get into your 30s you've, you've kind of plateaued like there's no more unless you're doing something I think people can start to go downhill. So it's really about trying to stay on that plateau. And it's a little bit like, I, I love the analogy and the, the work that's been done and the concept's been hammered home really well for osteoporosis. So build your peak bone mass, generally up to about 30 or so, right into, if you're a woman, menopause with the highest bone mass possible so that when you decline, because you're going to, you start at a higher level and everybody follows the same trajectory. So don't start down here, start here. And I think the story is the same with skeletal muscle, fitness, like everything. I mean, even master athletes lose muscle. They get weaker. They, they lose their fitness. But the difference is, you know, if you're up here versus here, then, you know, it's you've just got a bigger tank and, and, and a greater re reserve to be resilient when when these things, you know, these disuse events or some of these things happen with aging. So, um, you know, keep the event horizon in mind that's this long. People say, you know, they say, why are you training now? Like I, I, I saw a great Twitter post. Um, lady said, uh, you know, she was in the gym and a 20 year old said, uh, what, you know, what are, what are you training for? Like, I see you in here all the time. She says, uh, I'm training so that people like you don't have to pick me up when I fall over. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it, it's true, right? I, I, like, what am I training for? I, I don't compete in anything anymore. I'm just training to, to, to age well, to, like to ride, you know, the rest of my life out in, in as good a health as possible. So uh, it, it, you're right. Um, start early. Uh, don't wait um, and when does sarcopenia start? Well, you know, I, I don't know, uh, but definitely you can push it back and hold it and keep it at bay. But even the biggest, you know, strongest, most muscular guys and, and, and women, age gets you, right? So it's much better to start up here and go down than it is to start here and go down. High protein, high activity, yada, yada. All I mean, nobody, you're right. Nobody makes it out alive. I'm 100% sure no. of this. 
<laughs> yeah, the the rate of mortality holding constant at, at 1.0. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, and that's so, so I say to, you know, it, the, the concept is I'm always impressed with longevity extending experiments. And, but I do say to people, I have no interest in living to be 120 and feeling like I'm 120. Like, so we're talking about, you know, lifespan to some degree, but what we're really talking about is health span. So that compressed morbidity so that at the end, you just, you know, you, you go to sleep and that's the end of it. And it, uh, we have one guy and it's a guy, which makes it impressive in, at pace, John, and he's 104. That's good genes. And that's good genes. I, 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 well, it's good genes. It's good living and everything. And I, and I, I tell him, I say, I, you move like a 75-year-old. And he goes, ah, oh, thanks. You know, and he does. Like he, the way he moves around, like he doesn't shuffle in. Like he steps and he refuses to take the bus and he walks. He, like he's just, like in one day, I'm sure he'll go to bed and he just won't wake up. And what a great way to live your life. So You know, I, I know that my I'm running out of time with you, which I'm super bummed about. Uh, I will, don't worry, I know where to find you. Um, <laughs> it's all the, good, yeah, yeah. You know, I see a lot of aging individuals and I, I think it's really interesting when individuals are younger, they're constantly striving to make strength improvements, whether it's a one rep max or it's an improving a sprint time. There's this crazy thing that seems to happen I don't know if it's a mindset shift or a physiological shift, but somewhere along the line, there's less of a drive for improvement. And it. I wonder, do you think individuals should strive to continuously improve? And how can they do that? You know? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm on the opposite side of that curve. Um, for me, uh, right at the start of the pandemic, uh, I said to my wife, like it was, this was in the grim early dark days, everything's closing down, you know, that you couldn't find stuff on the street. And I said to her, I said, we need to buy a Peloton. And she said, oh, I thought you said those were too expensive. And I said, it is a lot of money, but I said, I think, I think this is gonna be bad. And it was literally two weeks before, you know, D-Day, everything closed and we got our bike and if somebody had told me prior to the lockdown, two years later, or two, a little more than two years, I'd have ridden on that thing 500 times. I'd have been like, you're joking. But that's where I'm at. Um, I can tell you that uh, at the start of the pandemic, I could do a lot more work on the bike than I can now. Not a lot, but it, I, it, like it's, it, it takes a monumental effort to get to those levels. So. I can, I, I know I'm on the way down. So I'm not hitting a PR every time. I don't lift anywhere near as heavy as I used to. Uh, if I do, uh, occasionally I go to the gym, uh, I get foolish. There's a young guy, uh, he's got something on the bar. I'm like, hey, can I walk, uh, can I work in? It's like, sure, you know, you want me to take anything off? I'm like, no, bro, I'm all good. I, you know, drop five squats and then, you know, and, and I Ted said to my son who's taking, exercise science and I said uh, he, he asked me about muscle soreness and I said have you heard about IOMS instead of DOMS like not delayed onset muscle soreness he said no what is that I said it's immediate onset muscle soreness I said like when your dad goes to the gym and thinks that he can squat like like he did when he was 20 you know so hilarious. so it, it hurts it, it hurts, uh, and it's not really the soft tissue. Where it hurts, it hurts in your joints, like here, my hips, my knees, my shoulders, my elbows, you know. So uh, I think there's something uh, that signals to your body. Uh, well, first, pain is a great feedback. Uh, I, I, you know, no pain, no gain is, is, is a mantra that was great when I could recover and feel like I was fully recovered the next day, which I, I could probably into late into my 30s. Uh, sometime in my 40s, I found it was taking longer and longer. And I was a fool, played things like rugby and ice hockey. And, you know, I remember one time I, 
my wife coming in and looking at me and and I was on the you know I was on the couch and I could barely move and she said baby in one hand little kid in the other she goes you're useless to me and I was like okay maybe it's time to give that up and so you know uh it's inevitable um I think it's the connective tissue that breaks down the the, the most uh tendons ligaments joints you know the the cartilage in there and, and it's accompanied with, uh, you know, a degree of pain that you're just like, eh, no pain, no pain. Um, I still push myself. Absolutely. Uh, but it's a, it's a, a more intelligent way of training. I train smarter. I train less. Uh, I train a little bit less frequently, although I'm still trying to do something every day. But I'll take a day where it's not a it's not a workout on the bike, or it's not a run, or it's not you know lifting. Um, a lot of which is only five feet away. Uh, it's a walk, and and I, I I enjoy the sunshine and take a look and or listen to a podcast. You know, it's a small menu of podcasts, Gabrielle. So, oh, but you're oh, on there. That's great. <laughs> uh, that I listen to. You are. You are. Yeah. Um, or or a book or something, and just uh, you know, uh, or or sometimes do nothing and just smell the flowers. So that's interesting. Uh, it sounds like perhaps you've uh, yeah. there's a, a bit of wisdom there. Yeah, almost. Although my wife would might argue yeah, a little bit, but uh, I think does. I think that it's a degree of. Ma- it's a, yeah, it's a degree of maturity or call it whatever you want. And I mean, the research has shifted too. So in 24 years, you could say the first 12 years, I spent a lot of time studying younger people. And now it's gradually shifted and it's become older people. And, you know, research becomes me-search. Like I'm looking for things that, that, that are relevant to me, but running pace and seeing people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, one guy in his 100s. I'm like, you know, wow, like, what is it that makes these people tick? How do they, you know, what do they find in their day because they don't work anymore that keeps them going? And, and you, they've got all got stories. They've all got things that brighten up their day. And, and so that has become an increasing part of my understanding of what it is to age well. It's physical. It's nutritional. Uh, it's cognitive. It's mental. But it's spiritual, psychological, I'm not sure which, but they all have a sense of purpose. Really incredible. This is a perfect place to end. And Dr. Stu Phillips, I am so grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. And the work that you've put out in the world is going to leave a legacy. Truly, truly impactful work. Thanks. Those are those are generous words. Um, I, I say this all the time, and I'll say it here again. Uh, I'm I'm really fortunate, blessed uh, to to have a great family, uh, to have a great job. McMaster University's treated me very well. Uh, but the 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 thing that's made it all you know teamwork makes the dream work. I have a great group of students. Uh, they do stuff. They do the work actually. And I just and you look just good do the as Peloton. Well. We know so, how it goes. Yeah, you know, I, and it, it, it's the the key is surrounding yourself with with smart people. So uh, you know, kudos uh, to them. Uh, I, I bask in their reflected hard work. So uh, I, th- those are those are powerful words, and they mean a lot. But I, I, I'm only part of the machine. Um, I got a lot of other people that That's help. That's very me out, very for sure. kind of you to say, and I know that your students appreciate it. Not saying that uh, I Don did not put me, he puts no undergraduates on uh, papers, regardless of the uh, work that they do. <laughs> you probably don't either. Don and I have a lot in common. <laughs> I just want to, like, I, I, and I got a ton of respect for that guy. There's a guy who I think is aging pretty He's well as well. He's doing amazing, so, uh, amazing. I, yeah, he, he chal- still challenges me, even to this day, and I still enjoy my interactions with him. Yep. Great guy. Well, you know, we'll put links to everything. I know that you're very active on Twitter. I follow you. Sure. Uh, it's very fun yeah. and somewhat entertaining. Also, we'll put a link to your labs page. They can find you on Instagram, and I also heard that you might be coming out with a TikTok. Just kidding. Uh, so my kids, my, my kids said, you know, Dad, don't do TikTok. There were my youngest, who's seventeen, said, uh, Dad, old people spoil TikTok. <laughs> 
So we won't so, uh, put a link uh, to your non-existent TikTok, but the, I will. The, there will be no TikToking. No. <laughs> uh, any anything else that you'd like to say? No, I just want to say thanks for having me on the show. Uh, honestly, these things are, uh, I know people say, you, you do a lot of these. And I'm like, these are the chance to translate the knowledge, to get it to people. You know, the type of knowledge that I generate, I work in a publicly funded institution. I'm a publicly funded employee because everything is state run in Canada. Uh, the, the, the knowledge should be the, the property of the people. Uh, not just in my ivory tower at the university. So thank you very much for giving me the the, the forum and the venue. I appreciate it. And for, for asking uh, difficult questions, but also giving me the opportunity to get on my soapbox a little bit. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, and we'll see more of you. All right. Take care, Gabrielle. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.